So I've been coming across a name more and more often lately, the Wagner Group. Not to mention the Wagner Group. Throwing a new spotlight on Russia's Wagner Group. The Wagner Group. And Wagner Group. Russia's Wagner Group. Yeah, the Wagner Group appears to be siding with uh, Hamedi's RSF. And to me, that sounds like some kind of random, fancy management company or something. But I know it's not. So, for starters, Wagner is a Russian paramilitary organization basically a mercenary army that has morphed and expanded, but that's what it is at its core. Greg Miller is an investigative international reporter for The Post based in London. It has weapons, it has fighters, it has trainers, it has some intelligence capabilities. It's basically there to serve Russia's interests or help Russia's allies in military situations around the world. Greg says its presence around the world has been known for years, but he says recently leaked intelligence documents are giving us new clues about the ways the Wagner Group is growing and evolving. It's kind of shifted from an organization that would slip into places where there was a security vacuum or some sort of problem and kind of offer solutions on its terms and the Kremlin's terms to an entity that, based on how it's described in these classified files, is more nefarious. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Chris Velasco. It's Wednesday, April 26th. Today, the origin story of the Wagner Group and its role in fueling instability around the world. Greg, can you break down for us when and why Wagner became a thing in the first place? Wagner was created in or around 2014 to sort of fill a need for, for Russia. Vladimir Putin was increasingly antagonistic toward the West, was increasingly interested in trying to grab back pieces of what had once been Soviet or Russian territory, and didn't always want to use the Russian military to do that. Wagner was created to kind of fill that need to be a private mercenary army, a small one initially, but an entity that could do Russia's military bidding without all of the entanglements of actually relying on conventional Russian forces. There's a lot of tentacles to this. It's a shadowy organization. It operates in a lot of different places with a lot of different capabilities. It uses shell companies and front companies to move money. It's not this single monolithic entity with a tight organizational structure, but something that is very amorphous and shifting shape all the time. So is it technically a part of the Russian military or something completely separate? Neither. So it is not technically a part of the Russian military, but it's not separate either. I mean, until last year, it technically wasn't even legal for a paramilitary company, a private military company, to exist in Russia. That changed after the invasion of Ukraine. But Wagner has always been private, privately funded, separate from the Russian military, but working hand-in-glove with it to the extent that 
satellite imagery has shown that the main training facilities for Wagner are adjacent to the elite special forces training facilities for the Russian military and its military intelligence directorate. All of this sort of suggests to me kind of having a pretty interesting person at the top. What can you tell us about the leader of the Wagner Group? So the leader is a guy named Yevgeny Prigozhin. To understand Russia today, you have to really learn more about him and understand him. He is very close to Vladimir Putin. He didn't start off that way. He is a former low-level criminal who spent time in Russian prison, who then emerged and, and sort of weirdly, in a kind of criminally connected way, got his life on track. He is often referred to as Putin's chef because initially his first business, uh, at least according to legend, was basically a hot dog stand in St. Petersburg. He parlayed that into a restaurant, and then he parlayed that restaurant into a business that was providing food to Russia's military services. And pretty soon, he was doing bigger and other favors for the Kremlin and for Putin. And it just morphed from there. It's a pretty remarkable story. I mean, have you ever met Prigozhin or talked to him? What do we know about him as a person? We are learning more and more about him every day. I mean, he was a fairly mercurial, sort of behind-the-scenes person for most of his career. And I'm not sure that many journalists have ever met him or talked to him. I certainly haven't. But since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he's taken on a much higher public profile. For years, there was no formal acknowledgement even of Wagner's existence. But now, Prigozhin touts it talks about it, acknowledges that he is its leader and is almost constantly on social media talking about what it's doing, especially in Ukraine. Just a month ago, you know, he showed up on social media wearing military sort of style fatigues in a very dramatic backdrop claiming that his forces had all, all but surrounded Bakhmut, which is this part of Ukraine that has been being fought over very intensely for many, many months now. I think it tells us a lot about Russia and about Putin's Russia in particular, where if you can prove yourself useful to people of power and influence in the Kremlin, especially Putin himself, uh, who's always seen himself as a scrapper and a fighter and somebody who is w- w- not part of the the historic elite of the country. You can you can go quite far, and Prigozhin has done that, and so he's basically found ways to make himself useful to Putin over and over and over. He's a hustler. He's kind of a scrapper, always on the edge of the law, if not the wrong side of it. And basically, he is just grown in influence and importance because Putin sees him as somebody who can deliver, and therefore Putin has helped direct contracts toward him that have made him a fortune. Where does the name Wagner Group come from? I can only tell you what I've read, and perhaps some of this is a bit of legend-making now, but, you know, the legend is 
that its name is actually a reference to the 19th century German composer, Richard Wagner, who, for rightly or wrongly, has long associations with white nationalism, including in Russia. Do you have a sense of how much of an influence the Wagner group has? Yeah, I mean, so Wagner got its start in Ukraine, essentially, in in, in 2014 or thereabouts, when it was sent in as a private mercenary army, army to train and equip Russian separatists' outfits that, you know, as part of uh, Vladimir Putin's effort to start peeling off territory from Ukraine and taking it and absorbing it into Russia. So it starts as this paramilitary, private, mercenary group that can do some fighting or training on Russia's behalf, basically on a pretty small scale in Ukraine. But Prigozhin becomes involved and puts this thing on steroids because Prigozhin has access, he has influence, and he has money. And so it starts growing. And it proves to be a valuable thing in Ukraine, right? It's, it, it solves an important problem for Vladimir Putin. He wants... Uh, Russia to have greater influence. He wants instruments of Russian ambition internationally, but he doesn't always want the downsides of that. He doesn't want Russian troops showing up necessarily in Ukraine, at least not, not in 2014 he didn't. He doesn't want the political downsides of dead Russian soldiers coming back from such excursions. And so if you use a private mercenary army, you avoid some of those problems. But its mission there now is almost unrecognizable in terms of scale and approach. I mean, back then it was, as I said, a a small sort of nimble paramilitary entity, private guns for hire, basically. Only in the past year and a half has it become an actual imitation army for Russia, where Prigozhin is recruiting tens of thousands of soldiers to be sent directly into the front lines in Ukraine and trying to take cities like Bakhmut. And we've seen images of how Prigozhin has gone about doing this. He is going, has gone to prisons in Russia notoriously to draw recruits from the ranks of criminals, convicted criminals. He has badgered the Russian military to supply his units with ammunition and gear and equipment. And his profile has, has risen tremendously along, along with all of this. You're describing a situation in which Wagner has a very close working relationship with the Russian government. But are there is there any daylight there? Do they have any independence to kind of pursue their own agenda? Or are they truly just in lockstep with, with Russia? I think that it's not really clear what the boundaries are there or what Wagner's authorities are or how much political freedom and operational freedom that Wagner has. It's clear that it has some. But, you know, Prigozhin has to survive in Russia like everybody else does. It's been remarkable, I think, to Russia watchers to see how brazenly he has taken on and criticized openly Russia's military and its generals. We wrote a story this past year uh, in which we, we had sources in, in U.S. and Western intelligence agencies saying that Prigozhin had gone directly to Putin and confronted him. <laughs> 
about how badly the war was going, how poorly served he was by his generals, and how he needed to change direction. I mean, this speaks to somebody who really has a rising profile and a rising, an increasing confidence in himself, and maybe, maybe even has ambitions or aspirations beyond running a, a paramilitary private outfit. And as Prigozhin has managed this expansion of his own influence, it does also seem like the Wagner Group itself has expanded its own footprint. Can you tell us a bit about how the footprint, the reach of the Wagner Group has started to change since it started doing Russia's bidding in Ukraine, you know, close to a decade ago? Our understanding of Wagner is actually kind of changing even as we speak because we're learning new things about it from a collection of leaked, classified U.S. intelligence files that came to light in the past several weeks. I'm part of a group of reporters at The Post who've been combing through these documents, and there's a lot of them about Wagner. And they describe it as, you know, not only anchoring a big part of the war in Ukraine, but increasingly ambitious and moving fast in other spaces, particularly Africa, to advance Russia's interests Prigozhin's interests and Wagner's interests all simultaneously. After the break, we dig into the impact of the Wagner Group's expanding presence across Africa. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Greg, from what we've talked about so far, I mean, yeah, the Wagner Group sounds tremendously spooky, I guess is a word I would use. And I imagine that makes tracking its comings and goings and actions pretty difficult to do. But you had mentioned leaks before. Can you tell us about how you and other reporters at The Post obtain these files and what you learn from them? So these are files that appeared online. They were initially posted allegedly by an Air National Guardsman, a young intelligence officer in the Air National Guard in Massachusetts, was posting them, it appears, based on what the United States has charged, uh, to impress his friends in online chat rooms. But there's a lot of classified slides in here that appear to have been created for senior U.S. military officials describing you know, important security issues around the world. And quite a number of these are focused on Wagner, Wagner's activities in Ukraine, in Africa, and elsewhere, and, and where things are headed and what to do about it. So based on your reporting of these documents, you spent quite a bit of time with these files. What do you understand now about the Wagner Group's presence in Africa, for example, that we didn't really have a clear sense of before? Yeah, and it's important to sort of say that there's been a lot of reporting about Wagner over the years. So it's not like we've just discovered this entity since the start of the war in Ukraine. Uh, there have been excellent reporting and lots of research into Wagner since it was created in 2014, and especially as it started uh, expanding into Africa. But what we've learned 
more recently is that it's kind of shifted from an organization that would slip into places where there was a security vacuum or some sort of problem and kind of offer solutions on its terms and the Kremlin's terms to an entity that, based on how it's described in these classified files, is more nefarious. It's actually trying to destabilize parts of Africa so that then it can again back Russia's preferred and favored candidates, strongmen, whatever, in various parts across the continent and basically advance Russia's interests, make Prigozhin more rich by securing access to or control of important assets like gold or diamond mines. It's something that seems to be really worrying the U.S. national security apparatus more and more. My understanding based off of the leaks is that the group is active in about eight African countries. Can you explain how the group gets involved in places like these? What is it doing? It looks for places where things aren't working, where security is breaking down, where you have some political instability and you have some figure, some strong man, some entity that needs help. And Wagner comes in saying, we can solve this problem for you. You've got political op- opponents you don't want to deal with anymore. Let our disinformation teams go to work on them, and we'll ruin their reputations in a matter of months. You've got rebels that are massing on the border, threatening you. Don't worry. We can train up your forces. We can serve as your security guards. We can take care of that problem by killing it. I mean, for autocrats in Africa who are desperate to stay in power, hold on to power, desperate to become more wealthy and take advantage of whatever resources their countries have, Faulkner becomes kind of a one-stop shop for problem-solving. Are these people who are availing themselves of the Wagner Group services under any impression that they are, in fact, just dealing with what kind of feels like a pseudo-offshoot of the Russian government? Like, or, or are they possibly thinking to themselves, oh, okay, like we're, we're not actually in league with Russia at all, and that's not what's happening here? I think that in some cases they might see that as a benefit. Look, we work with Wagner. We're going to improve our friendship with the Kremlin. You know, many of these are dictators or autocrats who the United States is actively working against or are opposed by Western governments and European governments. You know, working with Wagner protects you on the ground, but it also ingratiates you with Vladimir Putin and Russia. And so I'm not sure that's not a selling point. So the Wagner Group is clearly involved in a lot of what sound like quite expensive endeavors. I mean, supplying and sending mercenaries out to do work, fielding hackers to peddle misinformation. This is not necessarily cheap stuff. Are they... Are they getting money from clients, from the Russian government, both? What's our sense of how the economics work here? The short answer is all of the above. The longer answer is that Wagner both tries to find ways to enrich itself and to enrich the Russian state, and that it tends to work for clients, whether they're autocrats or others, who have something to offer, who can pay Wagner for what Wagner is going to deliver. Sometimes that payment's in cash, sometimes it's in giving up stakes in gold mines or diamond mines. But at the same time, you know, you really have to go back to how Wagner fits into the Russia of Vladimir Putin. And so 
Wagner's leader, owner, controller has become extraordinarily wealthy in Russia because of his connections to Vladimir Putin. Anyone who gets wealthy in Putin's Russia, that that wealth comes with obligations. And so Wagner undoubtedly at times is carrying out operations where Prigozhin is having to find funding for it. And that's just part of the price of admission for building the status or wealth of an oligarch in Russia. So I'm really curious how this is actually playing out on the ground. I mean, what about an example like Libya? What do you know about how the Wagner Group has played a role there? In Libya, after the Arab Spring and after the death of Muammar Gaddafi, you had efforts, troubled efforts for sure, but hopes that something better could emerge in Libya. August 2011, and rebel forces sweep into the capital, Tripoli, creating euphoria countrywide. The four decades of repressive and dictatorial rule by Muammar Gaddafi were over. But in a country divided along tribal and regional lines, the celebrations were short-lived. In fact, it's just become just constant fighting, rival factions, and Wagner has played a super big role in propping up the main entity threatening the recognized government, the UN-recognized government in Tripoli. So it's working against Western support and kind of extending and worsening and adding to the violence there. At the same time, it's like been often focused on areas where there are resources. I mean, Wagner fighters have been mostly interested in helping to secure oil and and other facilities or port facilities where Russia can pay for some of this and, and extract money. And in Africa, I mean, Wagner is not only in the Central African Republic, it's accused of helping to plot and overthrow in Chad. Wagner has a footprint in almost every trouble spot in Africa. Greg, hearing about all of the things the Wagner Group is up to in Africa naturally leads me to wonder about Sudan. The violence has paralyzed the nation's airports and claimed more than 400 lives. Where we've seen pretty brutal infighting between two military leaders over the last week. The RSF's leader, General Mohamed Hamdan Degallo, remains locked in a bitter power struggle with his arch rival, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. We've talked about this on Post Reports. It's a very ugly situation. A crisis that now threatens to engulf the entire region. Is Wagner playing a role in this at all? I think that Sudan may be uh, all too pointed an example of kind of what happens when Wagner inserts itself into a country like this. So you have basically, as you aptly described it, a situation in Sudan where you have two warring factions, each with leaders who have ambitions of being the leaders of all of Sudan and trying to consolidate power there. One of those factions, the the Rapid Support Forces, which is like Wagner, kind of an independent private paramilitary entity that got stronger over time, largely because of the help that Wagner gave it. Wagner provided training, Wagner provided arms, Wagner provided weapons and advice, intelligence capabilities, and strengthened this entity to the point that it now is challenging Sudan's actual military for primacy in that country. And, you know, Prigozhin 
gave us like a classic Purgosian moment as a result a week or so ago where he, on his own Telegram channel, offered himself as a mediator here. So this is a, a mess that he helped make, and now he's basically saying, also, I can come in now and help solve it. He sees himself as a one-stop shop for autocrats across Africa. So I guess to put a finer point on it, what is Wagner actually doing all of this for? What's in it for them to sort of meddle and sow discord and strife across Africa? Well, I mean, one of the slides in this recent trove of classified files kind of summarized that, that Wagner seems to be trying to create a confederation, and that's the word that shows up in the document, a confederation of anti-Western states, states in Africa that would become increasingly dependent on Russia, because that's always, it's always important for Prokosian and Wagner to be advancing Russia's interests uh, as a private military corporation. It's not going to be allowed to do much unless it stays in Vladimir Putin's favor. But it's also acting out of self-interest. It's also getting richer. It's, it's gaining control of or access to or percentages of shares in diamond mines, gold mines, other kinds of deposits in, in Africa. It targets countries where there are resources and riches to be had, but where there are weaknesses to exploit. Greg, we should note that Prigozhin claimed in comments on Telegram that his operations in Africa are, quote, honest and fair, unquote. But were you ever able to talk to someone from the Wagner Group and, and get a deeper sense of what they have to say about their ties to Africa? We've tried to reach out to Wagner, to its fighters, uh, and to Prigozhin himself. It doesn't tend to go very well. Um, Prigozhin is so hostile to the Western press now that when he gets questions from news organizations like ours, the first thing that happens is he often puts it up on his Telegram channel, the, the questions that we submit with a rant about the Washington Post or, or whoever is seeking comment. How concerning is this expansion, which we've seen unfold over the last 10-ish years and presumably will continue? How concerning is that to U.S. intelligence and military leaders? And what's your sense of how they plan to respond to all of this? I think it's very concerning. And, you know, the United States has sanctioned Wagner, described it as a criminal enterprise, an international criminal enterprise. It's gone after its money and its ability to move money around the world. The files show us that... Um, the United States and the CIA are pursuing ways to go after Wagner operationally using other countries' uh, militaries to carry out lethal strikes, military strikes. I think, though, that you know, there's quite a concern that it is on this trajectory and has expanded to the point where the U.S. is quite worried about where this, where this goes. The slides that we've been reviewing as part of our series of stories make clear that the United States is still just kind of figuring out options for trying to contain this group. As I was reading through these documents, there were lots of little things in there about Wagner, lots of things to learn about Wagner, but there was one thing that jumped out at me that seemed to cut across all of them, which is that I just had guess I had assumed that the war in Ukraine has gone so badly for Russia that it became sort of an all-hands-on-deck um, proposition that every, every Russian security entity that could bring anything to the fight was being forced to focus almost entirely on that. But the classified files we now have had a glimpse of 
show that Wagner is actually expanding and accelerating its operations in Africa. And so the idea that, you know, it's carrying a big load in Ukraine, but not only doing that, but expanding these operations in Africa, speaks to an organization that's a lot farther along in its development than I think I thought. Greg, thank you so much for joining me and kind of unpacking this stuff for me today. My pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. Greg Miller is an investigative international reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. If you want to show your appreciation for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe to learn more. I'm Chris Velasco. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.